I promised a mini-series inside, inside the teaching on Matthew. I promised a mini-series that I'm calling Family Ties. And so we started on Family Ties with dealing with the relationship with children. And we do our next installment today as we deal with the relationship to brethren, to brothers and sisters, to the family of God, to our one anotherness. And so we're going to be Matthew 18. And like I've been doing, I'm going to back up and then go forward. But first, a quick, here's where we're going. We dealt with the problem of broken relationships with children. Not enough, but a little bit. We're going to deal today with the problem of broken relationship with our brothers and sisters. And then the next time I preach, we'll deal with the problem of broken marriages. So this passage, this teaching is filled with radical grace, insane grace. Because unlike what the world pictures Christianity, we've managed to make the world understand that Christianity is about judgment. But we haven't managed to make the world understand that it's about crazy forgiveness. Radical, unbelievable forgiveness. Because what tends to happen to us is we get radically forgiven and then uh, we read our Bibles and we suddenly become judgmental. Gotta stop. Now, what I won't do though is remove the idea of judgment. Because in the problem of broken relationships with children, if you'll remember, was that horrible warning about the pain of those who harm children and offend children better not to be born. Better to have a millstone around your neck. So there's that judgment piece. You're going to see that inside of this problem of broken relationship with brothers, inside this is a, a big teaching on boundaries. Forgiveness does not mean that, that, that you don't have any place of saying no. There literally is no such thing as any organization, group, or people who don't have boundaries where they say, this far and no more. And so we have to deal with that. And then, of course, we'll deal with the problem of, of, of broken marriages, which has been so um, heightened in our world. But let's look at the scripture. Going back again, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the, over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If you're a pastor of a church, you're going to have people that go astray. Guess what? If you're a parent, you're going to see some, some going astray. Guess what? If you're in any kind of a group, you're going to see people that go astray. If you have any kind of standards, people are going to go astray. And the going astray of people is not like the going astray of sheep in case you haven't noticed. Sheep wander off and get lost. People leave. They will leave you. In fact, I, I say it's interesting 
Because if you go chasing after a sheep, they're happy to be found. But most of us are kind of like the goats. We're going to jump on a higher cliff when you come to get us. (laughs) We don't want to be gotten. We left for a reason. We left upset. We left hurt. We left angry. We left with our own judgments. We left for a reason, and you're the reason. But the reality is that that this passage is is about the the radical nature of love that says I'm going to find him. Now, underneath all of this is the idea that really, at some level, people want to be found. By the way, we're having a lot of defections. It was interesting when I started actually saying that we're living in a time of apostasy, that I, that I, that I actually, um, it's, it's kind of like, don't say it. Because um, it's, it's so close to people. Uh, so this is just a little, a little thought that, if, that, that I have to be working with. Um, my deep roots are Lutheran, which, which, is, all, which is almost like saying they're Catholic. Um, and then my, my secondary roots are Baptist. Now, if you go to Baptist and Lutherans and Catholics, you know what you're going to find? A big old emphasis on sin, Right? Now, every time you have an emphasis on something, there's an advantage to it and there's a liability to it. When I got converted, I got converted into a group that the the emphasis was on Jesus is coming back soon. You better get your hot air balloon. You're going up. And... uh, I remember, to be honest with you, I never quite bought into that. I never quite flowed with that, with people. And then as I studied history, I came to understand a little bit more about why those things happen. But, but one of the things that's happened a great deal to a generation who were taught that Jesus is coming back any minute was that there were all these unintended consequences. People who didn't get their education. People who didn't save for retirement. People who didn't plan for a future because they weren't planning on there being a future. And as a pastor, I've been around long enough to see them disappointed. People who didn't think you could know dates but thought you could know seasons and now even the seasons have passed. And the disappointments are strong inside of people. And there's nothing that brings disaffection more than disappointment. I think Judas was was a product of that. Jesus was not quite what he expected him to be. And disappointment led to disaffection and even betrayal. And yes, we're seeing exactly that kind of stuff. You and I live inside of a renewal. What's a renewal? It means we saw some stuff that was lying, unrecognized, un untaken and we've we've brought it to the forefront and you see it magnificently brought to the forefront because because we preach on the gifts of the spirit 
and the presence of the Holy Spirit among us and the prophetic voice of God and healing miracles. And we preach on this stuff, but the downside of that kind of preaching is some people don't get healed. And some people's prophecies that they thought were true fall to the ground. And after a while, you start dealing with a disaffected generation that has been disappointed because they haven't seen the glory that they thought they'd see it on the level that they would see it. My family awakened to the news of a 49-year-old grandson died of cancer in the night and the broken hearts of a, of a family. My sister, her, her stepson and her husband's only child. This is reality, guys. Now, why am I telling you this? Because I want to tell you this morning that if you hook your wagon to the central piece of what God has come to do, you will never be disappointed. What do you mean, Pastor? He came to forgive us. He came to find us. He sought us out when we weren't looking for him. I was the sheep that had wandered away, baptized as an infant, confirmed as a young man, taught the things of God, wandered away in the disappointment of a family that was falling apart under the pressures of the world, gone off into alcohol and whatever else I could find myself into, rebellious and angry, sexually active at the wrong age. I was the kid. I was that kid. And every once in a while, God would send somebody. A neighbor's mother who was mean and judgmental, but she told me the truth about myself. Right? A young man who was a stranger who just said, can I have a few minutes of your time? And he tried to talk to me about Jesus. A girlfriend who didn't know much more about God than I did, but who desperately knew uh, not a girlfriend, a date, who said, Alan, you really need Jesus. <laughs> I didn't get mad at her. I knew she was right. And of course, finally, this one stands with a fist. <laughs> but he kept sending these messengers. Why? Because he wanted to get me back. But what would it take? I would have to come to deal with my sin before him. I would have to stand before the one who could condemn me and hear him say, you're forgiven. I would have to call upon the name of the one who came for me, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so it was that way that that it was before the football season of 1972 that I cried out to God and the ocean of forgiveness washed over me. 
And I knew in that instant that I'd been forgiven, that my debt was paid. And listen, you've never been able to shake me since that day. You can never shake a forgiven sinner. Oh, you got to hear me. No promise fallen to nothing, but an encounter with God where he changed my core. And so, listen, I have the same questions everybody else has. Why, why aren't people healed? And, and why hasn't Jesus come back? And, and, and what is the answer to all these puzzling questions that I don't understand as I study the riddles of the Bible? But inside of me has always lived this witness that the one who forgave my sin has the answer. And he will see me through. And so I call you this morning to the central foundation of the Christian faith, which is the forgiveness of sins. And the reason that you go and find someone wandering, because listen, in our world, the reason people wander is sin has enticed them. Philosophies of the world have enticed them. Lies have gathered them. And what do we go to do? We go to say, you're in the wrong way. You're one of the forgiven ones. We don't go because we, we, we don't go to condemn them. We go to reannounce the forgiveness of God upon them. And tell them again what it is that he has done. And so sometimes when, when people allow me the privilege of baptizing them and they wander off, I say, you can't go, you've been baptized. I saw you die and rise again. You've got to come home because you belong to the one who washed away your sins and cleansed you. And this is the foundation. And when Jeremiah announced the new covenant, the, the heart of it was the forgiveness of sins. And so it's not without great suggestiveness that we enter into this next passage, which people always say, well, here's the passage about church discipline. It's not. It's the passage about radical forgiveness. Because he brackets this passage I'm about to read to you with the passage about going after the lost sheep and then he brackets it on the other side with a parable about the radical nature of forgiveness. And so in the middle of that, we get, we get a teaching on unforgiveness. Let me back up, get to my right place. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. By the way, sometimes people like me sometimes don't know we hurt you. It's true. Because listen, my feelings don't get hurt that easy. Have you noticed? I was raised that way. Man, I, I was raised with a foot in my... So listen... <laughs> that words will never hurt me thing, that's kind of true about me. It's not altogether true, but kind of true. But people get hurt. And so sometimes people like me who just kind of stride through life, sometimes we kind of make a wrecking ball of things. Now, there's a, there's a difference between somebody actually doing something to you and you making a judgment on them. Ah! 
If somebody's done something to you, go to them. Listen, even, I'm like that. If I've done something to you, come see me. Let's figure it out. I, I, I got nothing. You know, let's deal with it. Let's get it fixed. But sometimes, every once in a while, somebody hear a message on forgiveness, and then they'll suddenly change their attitude about somebody they've been mad at who doesn't know they've been mad at them. And they'll call you out and say, I need to talk to you. And they'll sit down with you and say, I don't know if you know this, but I've always hated you. (laughs) But after I heard a message on Sunday, I heard a message about forgiveness. And I just came to tell you, but I've completely forgiven you. I just want you to know that I've completely forgiven you. And then they walk out of the room. (laughs) They feel good and you, you need medicine. You need an IV. In other words, you don't have to tell everything. Some things can actually get resolved inside of you, and that's okay. But there's things where somebody does something, and let's, we got to talk. Can we talk? I'm glad I'm going out of town because I know my phone would ring this week. (laughs) I'm just going to turn everything off. It's just just going that way. (laughs) If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. Because listen, Reconciliation draws you closer. It's, a, it's pretty amazing. You see people who've been enemies who get reconciliation and they're, all of a sudden they're, they're like joined together. I'm going backwards with my thing. I'm backsliding as I'm preaching. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. By the way, how many of you would, wouldn't, wouldn't mind if, if this business of going to somebody in private, how, how many of you would like to see our public figures do some of that? <laughs> I mean, doesn't it hearten you to see uh, President, President, former President Bush and Michelle Obama hugging each other? Doesn't that just make you feel all good? And you, and you wish there was more of that going on on this, you know, on the, in the office side of things. But anyway, we got our own problems inside our own house, so let's clean up our own house first. In fact, let me tell you this first. This passage about if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault should be preceded in most of us. by a confession tour. I found this out when I got converted. Because when I got saved, one of the, one of the things that I had that I knew would be a problem was, listen, you have to understand, I lived in a small town. I was a public sinner. You know, Gail can still tell you about the time that she rode home with me from the basketball game and her mother was standing at the door waiting for her because she had never been with me before. And she goes to her mother and, and, and says, oh, I got to ride home with Alan Hawkins. He's a real sweet boy. I know who he is. <laughs> I was a public sinner. And I lived in this small town. And when I got converted, I said to my friend, I said, listen, I'm like... Nobody wants to hear me talk about Jesus. They all know me. 
I've bloodied enough noses and, and created enough drama and trauma. They know me. They don't want to hear me. And this guy said, well, here's what you got to do. And he taught me the, the way of gaining a clear conscience. And he taught me the path of being confessional about my own sins with people. And, and he taught, listen, he taught me step by step. He taught me how to go about uh, making proper appointments and how to actually say the right things. Because most of us, when we apologize, we smear the person we're apologizing to. You know, when you did that, I... And it, you, it, the apology's over when you do that. And, I, and he taught me that when you, that you say to people... You don't, maybe you don't know this, but I've had an encounter with God. And since I've given my life to God, he's, he's shown me. And I want, I wanted to tell you that I realized that I, the way I treated you was wrong. And I need you to, I need to ask you if you'll forgive me. And he's taught me step by step. And I actually did that stuff. And in fact, to this day, see, I didn't go hunting everybody up. I just let them come across my path. I don't know. He taught me that that was the, that was the wise way to do it. To this day, there's still a few people that if I saw them, my first words to them would be an apology. You know what I'm saying? Um, there's a lot of paths I could go down. I'm trying to corral myself. But I think that precedes this. In other words, dealing with me precedes dealing with anybody else. Uh, pastors on your staff are pretty wonderful at that. I, I don't know, I've never worked with a, with a more humble group of people who, who will come in and I usually have to say, stop that. You don't have to apologize for that. Because <laughs> again, I don't get my feelings hurt that easy. Now this one, you, you better be ready. Have it written out. <laughs> no, she's sweet. Have I told y'all how much I love my wife lately? In case I've missed it, in case I've missed it. When she stood up here last week and exhorted y'all, I was like, she's mine. <laughs> right? So all behind this going to somebody is, is dealing with yourself. And all behind this is, listen, the Bible wants you to gain a brother, not win a point. The Bible wants you to gain a brother, not win your argument. The Bible wants you to gain a brother, not tell somebody off. And then there's that part that says, if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you. Underneath of this, and um, I, I, I've taught this in other contexts a lot. But inside the Bible is the principle of two witnesses. 
In, in the Bible, to, in order to be condemned of something, there had to be two witnesses against you. You had to have a witness and a confirming witness. There's a higher standard in the Hebrew faith about, about condemning someone. It, it required two witnesses. By the same token, whenever they went out to testify of something God had done, it required two witnesses. I never consider somebody's testimony proof of anything. I'm just that way, to be honest with you. I'm the guy in the charismatic renewal that I'll hear a story and I'll go, that's a nice story. I'd like to hear it from somebody else who saw it. Because I believe in the, in the, in the, in the principle of a confirmed witness. That's also why uh, I seldom, when I'm given a testimony about somebody that got prayed for, I seldom say they were completely healed. I say they felt better and reported that their symptoms were gone. That's just what I do. You, you feel free to, to go on and, 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 and do what you do. But I believe in the principle of confirmed testimony. And it sits right here saying that you can't just condemn a person. It, go, it, would, it would actually be like this. If you had something against somebody and you went to that person and they said to the witnesses, I didn't do it, the case is over. Now you might be right, but the case is over. If he refuses to listen, then tell the church. Now, tell the church. Let me tell you something that's almost never going to happen. Uh, I've lived long enough that I've seen this done. It's done so badly. Somebody will sin, and then somebody will say they'll confess their sins to the leader, and the leader says, well, we're going to have to tell, we're going to have to confess to the church. Oh, please. Oh, please. Oh, please. Confessing things to the body of the church should be as rare as hen's teeth. It's the court of last resort. But, and frankly, most of this should probably take place in the, in the confines of your covenant group. Not, not in the whole congregation. In the Bible, most of the, most of the groups, most of the assemblies were small assemblies, small synagogue uh, assemblies. They were not large groups of people who most of them don't have anything to do about it or even know the person's last name. We're not here to, we're not here to expose people. We're here to restore people. But, but, in, but inside of a covenant group, Sometimes it happens, it does happen sometimes. Somebody acts so badly that it doesn't just affect that person, then it affects the group. And the group can't function because of that person's bad behavior. Nobody's ever seen that, have they? You've all seen it. And guess what? Every group you've ever been in, whether it was political or educational or whether it was recreational or whether it was theological and worshipful, every group that you've ever been in practices a form of discipline where people who misbehave get confronted and stopped. It's usually not as clean as this, but it happens. Oh, it happens. It most certainly happens, and it should happen. Because what the Bible is saying is, as radical as we are about forgiveness, our behavior is bounded by the fact that you don't get to act that way here. 
when I was raising my kids and they got old enough to say no, which they do that. <laughs> God played a little trick on us. He gave, he gave us this period of time in which they're still in your house, but they can say no. And when, when my kids got old enough to where, to where I could confront them and they could say, no, there would come a time when I would say, we don't live that way in this house and you are not going to make us. To my own children, ask them. Go ahead, call them up. <laughs> yep, that was dad. <laughs> Do you understand that? You get, to, you get to choose a, a way of life inside of a group and it's bounded. Now, do you understand that you can forgive people and still tell them they can't act that way? Okay, now we can talk. <laughs> because what gets misunderstood, you talk radically about grace and then people go, well, am I just supposed to let them run over me? Well, this passage says no, and the last passage says they're going to get tossed in the river. What are you doing down there? And this next passage is going to talk about divorce. So always, even in a community defined by forgiveness, there's boundaries. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound, is the way it says, in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask, it will be done for them by my Father. Where there are two or three gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is Jesus saying that the people who are his covenant forgiven people who live in agreement, the pronouncements that they make are binding. Now, let me tell you what the pronouncement that you ought to make most often of all in that kind of context is. You're forgiven. Amen. Nothing bothers me more than when somebody confesses sin and everybody goes silent. No, no, no. That's the time to make the pronouncement. Uh, Interesting thing about serving Jesus. None of us are ever graduate. We never ever graduate. You don't, don't know that? I have a doctor's degree in theology, but in serving Jesus, I'm in kindergarten still, I think. Do you understand this? What, what does it mean by that? It means that I don't care where you are in your walk with Jesus, you're going to find yourself wrong. You're going to find yourself the offender. You're going to find yourself in need of forgiveness. You're going to find yourself having done something. You're like, did I do that? How could I have done that? And when you get confronted with it, because most of us, most of us do stuff this way. We do it and we do it in such a way that we kind of don't notice what we did. I mean, we're real keen on observing other people's bad behavior, but we're kind of oblivious to our own. But when it gets confronted to us, then we see it. So listen, most of our sin doesn't disqualify us from serving Jesus. It just means we got to be as humble as everybody else. But y 
Y'all know that passage about don't many of you be teachers, you'll be held to a stricter judgment. That's a nice thing to say, but when it happens to you, it's like, you go, wow, I should, I should go into exile. I'm a teacher and I've hurt people. I should go into, and you really, you want to send yourself. So some of that going away is sending yourself in exile. Some of the people you go get have sent themselves away because they're ashamed. And you know what they need? They need to hear from the body of Christ. In the name of Jesus, you are forgiven. It's a beautiful thing to be in a marriage and to say those words to one another. You think marriage is, you think the Catholics are all wrong about marriage being a sacrament? They ain't. The grace of God comes through the relationship of the marriage like nowhere else. And you're a priesthood in the house. The right thing to do with people when they're in trouble, when they're in sin, when they're in temptation, is to have an eye to eye with them and say, look at me, you're forgiven. And I mean an eye to eye, because listen, you know what sin does to you? Makes you not look at people in the face. But you have to have an eye to eye where somebody says, listen to me. Um, it really is true that when you actually realize your sin, the one that condemns you the most is the one that lives inside your head, you. And you need somebody outside your head to actually announce your forgiveness to you. This is a really big deal. How big? Well, Peter came to him and said, Lord, how many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Because I'm keeping records here. He says, as many as seven times? <laughs> That's the surest argument that maybe Peter wasn't married. <laughs> I do not say to you seven times, but, and the way it should read is, Seventy sevens. Seventy times seven. Because listen, if you said if you said seventy, if you said seven, people would count. If you said seventy seven, people would still count, wouldn't they? We got, we got some good we got some good accountants. I've been keeping records. But whether you know it or not, there's an echo inside of this passage that when I saw it, it just made me weep. I didn't put the text up for you, but I'll go quick to it. Just one more quick excursion and then we're done. Well, then we're done with this piece. (laughs) 
all the way back in Genesis chapter 4. Where Cain killed Abel. And God told him, when you work the ground, it won't work for you anymore. You'll be a fugitive and a wanderer. And Cain said, my punishment is greater than I can bear. You've driven me from the face of the ground. I'll be a fugitive and a wanderer, and whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to Cain, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Now, understand what happened here. Cain killed his brother. The Lord put a punishment on him, but the Lord put a protection on him also. He said, I'm going to mark you in such a way that if anybody touches you, then they'll get sevenfold judgment coming upon them. Well, if you follow the line of Cain through chapter 4, you find that the line of Cain gets worse and worse in its rebellion against God. And seven generations from Cain, we run into this guy named Lamech. And Lamech is the one that institutes polygamy in the Bible. And Lamech is the one who, who then says, I have killed a boy for wounding me. It says a man in the text, but if you read it, it's a young man. And the idea is that, well, well, Cain slew his brother over jealousy. And then Lamech comes along and kills a young man who he said bruised him. And then he said, then this man announces over himself, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy sevens. And so when, when Peter, do you understand this? This is Lamech. Basically, this is Lamech making himself into a god and declaring judgments like a god and magnifying it. This is, this is arrogance blown out of the, of the world. And when Peter says, how often shall we forgive? You know what? <laughs> you know what Jesus does? He says, remember Lamech? As far as his curse is my forgiveness. Got it? Got it. The inexhaustibility of the evil of man cannot exhaust the mercy of God. Come on now. And then he says, and then he says, now let's let's tell a story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, and this is where we finish, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he could not pay his master, ordered him to be sold with his wife and children. This was very common. If you can't pay your debts, you're sold into slavery. You're sold into bondage. Sold with his wife and children that he, that he had in payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave his debt. That's a good story, right? Too bad it's not the end. <laughs> but, but when the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, which is a much lo- lesser amount... 
And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I'll pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison till he should pay the debt. And I love this. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were distressed and they went and reported to their master what had taken place. There's always a rat, man. They're everywhere. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And so my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Oh, okay, so let's get this. We're done, except I'm going to baptize everybody. So this was, I'm just going to tell you the truth. This was me. This was me. I was the kid. I was the kid. When Jesus came and forgave my sin, man, that was, I was that guy. I was him. And here's what Jesus is saying to you. Out of the abundance of what you have received, you have enough to give to everyone who owes you anything. In other words, in other words, no one could possibly have done more against you to exhaust what you have received. Out of the fullness of what you have received, You have something to give. And that's the normal Christian life. And you say, why is it so hard? And that'll have to be for another day. But I will tell you this. One of the big problems with forgiving people is we don't realize the debt we owe. We don't realize what the poets say when they said, when I stand before your throne, dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see thee as thou art and love thee with an unsinning heart, then Lord, shall I truly know not till then how much I owe. You see, a big part of the reason that we have a hard time forgiving people is because their debt to us we see as big and our debt to him we see as small. And Jesus says it's the other way around. Your debt to the Father is immeasurable and everyone else's debt to you is just a... Let me put it this way. You see a big waterfall. Anytime you've ever seen a waterfall, I I saw the Iguazu Falls. When you see the Iguazu Falls, it's such a massive waterfall. There's a mist that rises. And I think God is saying, our forgiveness, our sin, our debt was like the force of the water smashing on the rocks below. And what we have to offer is just a mist. 
so that everyone who is around us is not pummeled by the force of the water, but refreshed in the mist. And this is the Christian life. And if you base your life on forgiveness, you'll never go away. And you'll never be disappointed in Jesus. And this is the gospel. Would you stand together?